You're listening to Season 2, Episode number 2 of the 200 Churches Podcast. Hey, if you are new to our podcast, we started podcasting, Johnny Craig and I, my name is Jeff Cady, we started podcasting in January of 2013, and our mission has never changed, ministry encouragement for pastors of small churches. We podcast over 350 episodes, and then we call that season one. And now we've just started this fall into season two. Last week, we had Dave Jacobs on the podcast to talk about basically how do we get along when we differ doctrinally. And we talked about several issues, uh, and that was a good episode, episode uh, number one of season two. Uh, Today, we've got Mandy Smith on the podcast. Mandy is a pastor and uh, originally from Australia. Uh, She's the lead pastor of University Christian Church. It's a campus and neighborhood congregation with its own fair trade cafe in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. She is a regular contributor to Christianity Today publications and the author of Making a Mess and Meeting God. Her latest book is The Vulnerable Pastor, How Human Limitations Empower Our Ministry with InterVarsity Press. Mandy and her husband, Jamie, he's a New Testament professor at Cincinnati Christian University, and they live with their family in a little house where the teapot is always warm. Today we talk with Mandy about an article she wrote for Missio Alliance. The article is titled, What Our Current Wilderness Reveals About the Strongholds in Our Lives. But let me just read to you just a short section. She says, after being forced into hard labor for years, they were finally free. But in their freedom, they spent a lot of time grumbling against Moses, pining for cucumbers and garlic, and whining, why did we ever leave Egypt? From a distance, we can say, really? You'd rather have cucumbers and garlic and oppression than manna and freedom? But when you're accustomed to a stable lifestyle, knowing what each day will hold and where your food will come from, to suddenly wander in the wilderness is deeply disconcerting. And in this article, she talks about what if our pining to go back to normal is like the Israelites complaining and wanting to go back to Egypt. Man, that is a great thought. What if actually, what if actually we've been set free in the ministry world, and as believers, set free from maybe a prison that we were in, and we shouldn't be so quick to want to return to normal. So in this episode, she talks about that, she kind of unpacks that with us, She's got she's got a great way about her. You're going to enjoy this episode. Here's our conversation with Mandy Smith. Thank you so much, Mandy, for being willing to join us today. As is as is becoming too prevalent for us, Jeff. We had some technical difficulties, but I think we've got it worked out. And uh, I'm I'm grateful for your time and uh, your presence with us this afternoon. Yeah, it's good to be here. I think the bigger difficulty was that your guest for today. Um, was about to take a nap because she'd forgotten that it was time to be recording this afternoon. So I think that's a, ra- a rather large challenge that I, <laughs> that I presented <laughs> I to gonna, you. I wasn't going to say anything about it, you know, but sure, yeah. <laughs> it gave but the, a the, chance to catch up. It was good. Yeah, the interesting thing is 30 minutes later and Johnny and I were still talking and we don't even have to push record, <laughs> record to talk. That's right. Well, that's true. That's good. Uh, so, Mandy, you... Uh, you're a pastor in Cincinnati. We've talked a few times before, but give us give us a little bio rundown 
on uh, on what you do and where maybe yeah. people can find your writing. Yeah, sure. So I'm originally from Australia, but I've lived in the US and the UK for some time. I am the lead pastor at University Christian Church here in Cincinnati, which is a campus and neighborhood congregation. We have one of the best, well, we have what was the first fair trade cafe in the city started about 16 years ago, um, right there by the University of Cincinnati campus. So um, in addition to that, I do a lot of writing and speaking, and I think that's primarily because I just see such a disconnect between what the church looks like right now and what I see in scripture, and I want to just kind of be processing with other people saying like, am I just imagining this? Is it just me? Is there something else that we're called to? And I love that vision and it doesn't look like what I see and what I, what I do myself. And so um, I'm often just kind of processing through writing myself. And then I think, well, if this can bless anyone else, I want to share that as well. So um, that often means I'm writing for Missio Alliance, which does a wonderful job with their Writers Collective and also for Christianity Today. So you can see me on both of those blogs, websites. And then um, my book, The Vulnerable Pastor, is one that people have found a blessing recently. I have two other books, but they're out of print, so I don't really mention those very often because people can't get them. And I have another one coming up um, next year with Baker, Brazos Press, um, that will be called Unfettered. And I'm still learning the subtitle, but it's Imagining... (laughs) a childlike faith beyond the baggage of Western culture. There you go. Hmm. Yeah. Writing with, uh, with Brazos. My wife is writing a book right now and sometimes she, she, she um, made a contract with Tyndale, but um, she thinks about Brazos a lot. Um, That was, she was torn in her soul a little bit. Mm. <laughs> she loves Brazos. And some Me of the people too. Who I'm there. so excited to be working with them. Yeah, it's aw- that's awesome. That's really, yeah. really cool. I- I'm still stuck on this idea that there's baggage in Western culture. Uh. I, <laughs> I thought Western culture was it, man. Yeah, we've arrived. <laughs> we've arrived. Yeah, there you go. Perfect. Mandy, before we get into... Uh, and this will this will tie with our conversation today. We were going to talk about something you wrote for Missio Alliance, actually. But I I just want to ask here, and we're recording in September of 2020. Do you find it? Are you finding it hard to be a pastor right now? I can speak for myself. I'm very much finding it hard to be mm-hmm. a pastor. Mm-hmm. I would ask Jeff the same question, but I'm asking you first. What I mean, yeah. that's who's listening as pastors. Are you finding it hard? Oh right my now? goodness! Yeah, I actually played. So the vulnerable pastor wrestles with this question about how is it really possible that God can use our weakness to show his strength? We know that in theory, but what does it look like to really live that? And I think that was what I was talking about with you last time. And so I actually played one of my own recordings about that recently to kind of preach it to myself. I've shared that before on social media and I just thought, well, it's it's a three-minute little clip. I'm just going to put it up in case other people find it meaningful and encouraging or if they need it as much as I do. And so many people, like I had shared it before, nobody would really commented that much on it. And this time when I shared it, there were so many reshares and uh, there's a radio show in um, Chicago that picked it up and quoted it this week. And obviously it's a felt need right now that we're just really feeling our own weakness. And honestly, too, just as human beings, I think there's a reason why we become pastors, that we love being with people and all the things that 
we can't do right now, you know. So one of my favorite parts of the week is holding the communion cup as people come and dip the bread in and and feeling God's love for all of them and being at that point, that crux of everything that we're talking about. And I haven't done that for months, you know. So even as, you know, apart from just the work is harder and the balance of how we spend our time is different, it's harder to measure success or fruit or any of that. Apart from that, I think just personally, there are things that we love to do that we that we don't get to do anymore and where we found God that we can't do those things. And also the things that we are spending our time on are often things that we don't really feel gifted for or that we find energy in. So yeah, totally. <laughs> I hear it. I feel it. How about you, Jeff? Are you loving... 2020 well, I'm, I'm not the guest, so I'm going to give an abbreviated <laughs> response. But I think that, you know, you talk about the vulnerable pastor. I think that as pastors, we want our people to do the ministry and we want to be mm. standing in the background as much as possible. Mm. And this, but it's like the humble brag, right? We want to be in the background, but we also like the limelight. But mm. this is giving us an opportunity to really be in the background and to allow others to step in and to do things and be essential, right? Mm. Have, have oh, our people, have mm. our people be essential. And we really do take the background and begin to, I think we're afraid that if we're not that essential, we'll become non-essential. Like if we don't have to be upfront all the time, leading, you know, showing the way that somehow we'll lose our spot. I just don't think that that's true. I think that we need to stay in the background. We need to push normal people to the foreground and let them serve. And this is a great time to do it. That's really, that's kind of preaching. But yeah, I, I am finding it hard because all the normal routines are upended. So yeah. if we're all going to be honest, oh, I'm a leader. I'm going to lead right through this. I'm going to show my people the way through the wilderness as soon as I figure out which way is up. <laughs> well, I was just about to say, I, since I have no ego, that, that part's not that hard for me. That's you know? true, Johnny. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what all my uh, critics say. No ego. So, Mandy, you wrote this article, blog. I don't know the right term. It was beautiful. Let's just call it that. This beautiful thing uh, for Missio Alliance. The title was What Our Current Wilderness Reveals About the Strongholds in Our Lives. And you kind of go into this. A little bit, you're talking about how we're in this wilderness, political, economic, social upheaval. We're surrounded by it. Uh, it seems to be kind of like all we can think or, or dream or talk about right now. And you kind of took a little bit, I don't want to say a spin, but you gave me theological maybe vision for the mm. wilderness that I, I had been lacking. So could you just Give me the Cliff's notes here for someone yeah. who maybe hasn't read about what what you had to say about that. Sure. So I was thinking a bit about the way that we think of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness and we're like, really? You're missing eating leeks and onions by the Nile, as um, Keith Green said in one of his songs. Um, so you want to go back to Egypt was the song. And so you, it's like easy for us to ridicule them and think like they were in oppression in Egypt and now they're in freedom, but all they can do is miss all the, I think it mentions like melons and onions and things that the, and then pots of meat yeah. that they love to eat back in Egypt while they're wandering in wilderness. And that seems ridiculous to us, but, but here we are wandering in wilderness and all we can do is miss all the things that we had. But what if 
we also have been released from oppression in some way as well. And we are only really sensitive or more sensitive to the comfort or the familiarity that we've lost and maybe not yet as aware, you know, it's, by the way, it's fine to grieve. Like, I think it's really healthy for us to grieve what we have lost. And that's really healthy. But at the same time, even as we're grieving, what if there is something that God is offering us that actually looks like freedom as, as disconcerting as freedom can be when we're used to oppression. So then I started looking into the passage from second Corinthians 10, where Paul says, Though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So I was fascinated with the word strongholds, and thankfully I have a New Testament scholar in my house, and so I was just like, tell me more about this word strongholds. And he helped me to understand that, this is my husband, by the way, it's not just some random person. (laughs) Um, We knew. (laughs) Yeah, I, I just wanted to make that clear. So it is really nice that like at 10 p.m. when I'm reading a passage and I just really have a question, I can just like tap him on the shoulder and turn to him and be like, by the way, before you go to sleep, tell me this answer. So strongholds, it actually isn't used very often in scripture, but where it is used in other places, it can be either a fortress or a prison. So it's interesting to think like if you're in a fortress that feels really solid and really safe, but what if you are also in a prison? What if you're feeling safe because you can't get out of this place? You know, so I just thought about that in an interesting way as well, along the lines of what was happening with the with the Israelites being released from Egypt. So I ask, like, is it possible that that even as the comfort of our structured life is torn down, is it possible that this is also an opportunity for the prisons of these strongholds to be? To be have the to have the potential to be torn down as well. As much as we're lamenting the comfort of what we thought was a fortress, are we grieving the destruction of something that was a prison? And one thing that's especially, I'll say this and then I'll finish the summary. I don't know if this is really a Cliff's Notes, but one thing that has struck me as a little bit disturbing about this is that normal has not actually been healthy for everybody. And so even as we are lamenting our loss of normal, what if, how does that sound to people for whom normal was oppressive? It might have been a fortress for us, but it might have been a prison for somebody else. And so what what opportunities might we have, and I'm hearing this from women and from people of colour, for us to reimagine a new normal together because old normal wasn't working for everybody. I love that. And that's really why I wanted to have you on today and to talk about this, because like I said, what we want to do in this season is to ask hard questions and continue being uncomfortable. I assume in 2020, we're all already uncomfortable. If you're not, you have uh, your ability to compartmentalize should be applauded. Mm -hmm. And also probably you should get therapy because if you're not uncomfortable or a little bit out of sorts in 2020, you're not paying attention. And so Mm -hmm. we wanted to do what we've called now season two of this podcast to continue these conversations that are so uncomfortable. And I thought your perspective is a great jumping off point because it says, Hey, you know how you're thinking, wouldn't it be great to get back to normal? what if normal was actually really terrible? What would that, you know, mean? And what would that 
look like? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It reminded me of times when I've been through seasons of depression and one time in particular that was probably the worst and I just felt like my life was smashed into a million pieces, which is just a horrible state to be in. And life kind of feels that way for all of us in some ways at the moment. But what I found as I was healing coming out of that season was that as I was reimagining what life would be, there were some things that actually hadn't been healthy, some habits or ways of seeing that hadn't been healthy. And so when you're just cruising along in life, you don't even notice what's unhealthy about it. But it's not until it all gets smashed to bits that you even can pay attention. And so as I was building something back, putting something back together again, I could actually see for the first time, like this piece isn't good. I'm not putting that back in when I put this back together, it's going to take a new shape. And that feels really spiritual. I think that reminds me of, of just places of purifying and um, ways that challenge and wilderness brings things to the surface that otherwise we don't notice. And so that feels like a really beautiful opportunity right now, even though it's painful. Are you playing with some of these same ideas in, in the book that you said is coming out next year? When you talk about the baggage of Western culture, mm, right? I, I assume mm-hmm. that some of these same ideas are coming to bear. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is that's about childlikeness and how pursuing that promise that Jesus said that we enter into the kingdom. We can't enter the kingdom unless we are like children. I think it's actually... The baggage is the fact that we are so used to thinking our way out of problems and working our way out of problems, and we keep perpetuating the problem, even in how we try to solve the problem, (laughs) even how we try to get out of Western baggage. We're still trying to think our way out and fix our way out, work our way out. And as children, we, we knew how to engage with life in a different way that didn't assume that it was all up to our ideas and our own power. So I think there are definitely connections, although you've asked me a question that I'm probably going to have to think some more about. But yes, somehow there's a connection there. So Mandy, I'm curious, in in this year, we've had the issue of COVID-19 as it relates to our not being able to meet and our having to use technology and our trying to connect with people in ways that are uncomfortable and seem not personal to us. But then we've also had in our country the issue of, of uh, racial sensitivities, where all of a sudden we realize that what, what might have been normal for us has mm-hmm. been very painful for others, and they're calling for a new normal. Which of those, which of those worlds are you, are you uh, engaged in more? right now? Are you engaged Mm. more with the church, trying to connect it and trying to have this new way of meeting and worshiping? Or are you engaged with your people in this struggle to help the least of these and help those Mm. who feel oppressed and who are oppressed? And yet the majority uh, in America doesn't really feel it like they do. Right. That's a good question. And maybe that's why I wrote this article, because I feel a little bit torn between both of them. And I get and I feel myself like it's a wonderful thing to have something to miss that we can't worship together. You know, I don't get to see my family in Australia and every time I call them, my parents remind me, but what a beautiful thing that we have something to miss because some people don't want to see each other and we long to see each other and we Mm. call each other every day. And so it's actually reminded me how beautiful it is that we do miss worshiping and singing and taking communion together. And I feel that too, and a lot of my people feel that. But I also have a lot of folks in my congregation who are more on the margins. They're out of work or they already had mental health issues, dealing with loneliness. You know, there's this strange 
disconnect. And I, I see in some ways how much this is actually bringing more inequality in this country than, than already was there beforehand, where some folks I've read are um, investing in bigger houses because their work has just gone online now. They haven't had any loss of income and they're professional people. And so they've actually thought, well, if I'm working from home, I'm going to get a bigger house. And I've, and I've heard about car companies advertising to executive types to get um, the latest Lexus SUV because, hey, if you can work online, then you might as well take the family on a big trip. And these kinds of industries are booming. I heard too that like home depots doing great business because people are renovating their houses. On the other hand, we have people, imagine someone who was already out of work or close to being unemployed living just really close to the bone financially, had mental health issues related to trauma, uh, racial trauma already, and related to loneliness and um, being ostracized from the community, also has some health issues that mean that they're of high risk and need to stay at home. So suddenly you've got two very different situations. And so we've actually seen some some newly homeless women in our neighborhood in recent months, which I we have homeless people that are around our community all the time, but we've come to know them and they're kind of regulars and, and I haven't come across many newly homeless people before and I've met two in the last couple of months and I just see that coming as well. So, I yeah, I think I feel torn between between those realities and just so brokenhearted that, that this is making even more of a disparity between people at different ends of that spectrum. The thing is that people that are doing well often don't really know the people that are not doing yeah. well, right? Yeah. And how how can we as the church call the members of the body who are flourishing to recognize and see the members who are not flourishing or mm-hmm. even within our community for them to see that and for the church, the believers who have to be willing to help those who have not right. and, you know, kind of come alongside of them. Do you, yeah. do you see any of that? Do you hear of any of that happening? Well, the interesting thing is for me, I think one of the best things, so for me, some of the concerns or the, some of the cautions that we are um, taking with meeting and being sure not to spread the disease or the virus is a justice issue for me because Sure, it'd be nice for me to be able to do all the things I'm used to doing, but there are some people who are really harmed by this. And the longer it goes, the, the more likelihood is that they'll be in just dire straits. And so I do think that it's an issue of justice to do at least what we can, although we can't totally control it, to at least do our part to um, abide by all of the cautions to be sure that we get through this thing for the sake of those who are really, you know, for, for some people it's just, oh, I just would like my kids to get out of the house because I'm sick of having them at home or something. But for some people it's a much bigger thing. So for me that's one of the most practical ways that I see that we can make small steps. But, yeah, I would, I'm sure there are, there are other um, more hands-on ways. I mean, of course I'm seeing like in relationships. Well, actually here's a practical example. When the $1,200 Stimulus money. Stimulus money, yeah. When that came for some folks in my congregation, they didn't feel that they really needed it because their work hadn't been affected. And so um, we started a COVID-19 kind of benevolence fund for people who felt like that was just excess money for them. And then we're able to distribute that to folks who have lost work as a result of COVID-19. So that was a really practical thing that it's really beautiful to be able to do that. You know, we're talking about COVID-19 uh, and then obviously Jeff was bringing up 
racial issues and disparities. Before we started our conversation today, Jeff and I were talking about the the way that truth has become contested. What you know, who what is right and what is true. So you're talking about right taking mitigation steps, right, to try to limit the pandemic. And yet we might have somebody listening right now who uh, is thinking to themselves, well, the pandemic's not even real. Right. Uh, so why in the world are you doing that? And you're just uh, this and that. Do you think that any of that attitude comes from a general, like we don't, we don't want to be in the wilderness. And so we just tell ourselves we're not in the wilderness. We don't mm-hmm. want to take down a stronghold. So we just tell us ourselves there is no stronghold. I mean, how do you yeah. see that? kind of playing into this whole idea Mm, goodness so kind of numbing the reality of the situation i don't want to minimize if somebody has a different opinion than me um we do it all the time oh okay (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah it's interesting because um i actually think this is a really interesting moment in american culture because um it is easy to avoid the reality of our human limitations so often in in a wealthy western culture if we can't fix something or understand something or control something there's so many things at our disposal that make us feel powerful whether it's technology or medicine or access to information or you know all the services that our community offers us that we mistake for our own power. This is interesting for me to watch because I think there are some people for whom this is the first time that they really come up against the end of themselves. And this is the first time for some people that um, there's been something that they just can't, they can't fix it or control it or understand it. And that is incredibly humbling. And I see some people just saying like, well, that's, that's never happened before. That can't be right. So if I just don't think about it, it'll go away. You know, if I just, if I just keep moving forward, then it'll, um, maybe it will not affect me. And that actually troubles me deeply, um, on a spiritual level, because I think that's a salvific moment. I never use the word salvific, but I think it's a word. You're married to a New Testament scholar. You're you're allowed to use salvific. It's a moment of salvation, you know, and um, all kinds of philosophers and theologians talk about the void or or that space that's at the edge of, of our capacity where we can keep scrambling to try to be enough in our own strength or we can choose instead to just say, I need something else outside of me. And so it's a wonderful opportunity for the church, I think, to actually say, you see that horrible feeling that you have right there where you've just discovered that, that you can't save yourself? Like, I know something that gives me hope in that moment. Um, so in some ways, it's a wonderful opportunity for the gospel. But, but it does really sadden and disturb me when I see, and I've done it myself, so I recognize it, when I see instead that we just want to avoid that confrontation with with angst or whatever Kierkegaard calls it, you know, with this like feeling that we are falling, 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 and and we cannot catch ourselves. I think that's connected to your question. It was a while ago now. <laughs> but, but, yeah, I think it's, A, both a beautiful opportunity for something spiritual to happen and for us to know our need for Jesus and also a really troubling thing when our hearts are hard and we just don't want to even confront the reality of our human limitations. I've been convicted a bit in all of this. I've dubbed the uh, pandemic the great revealing for me because it, mm. it just has 
brought a lot of stuff, but I have, I personally am lamenting the ways that I have ignored or downplayed the value of church liturgy and realizing that there's so much language that belongs to the church to help us in this time that I have just decided it's not important to me. And now I feel like I'm scrambling to try to engage liturgical practices and liturgy, but I've lived my whole life pretending that they're pointless and needless. <laughs> and yeah. I've been foolish, like so foolish. And my wife is loves liturgy and, and always has. And she's kind of looking at me like, I told you all that. And I'm like, yeah. I know you told me, but still it's, I don't know what that's worth, but that's just a thought that I've Yeah. Heard. Mike Frost actually just wrote something about that. Did you see it? She sent that to me. Yes. She sent that to me. Oh yeah. So yeah. I think, I think it's good because there, there are ways that he's talking about how it's been, it's become so apparent how much we have become about words. Everything we do is about talking and reading and listening to words. And he says, you know, there's this rich tradition of this um, emotive, embodied, metaphorical, beautiful experience of liturgy that um, most evangelicals just don't have a lot of connection to. Right. But it's an ancient thing that's accessible for us in this moment. Yeah. And I love that too. Even if are it means you, we have you, to hum the hymns. I think we're going to be humming instead of singing when we do get back in our building. <laughs> are you that's, referring to symbols? Symbols and an artwork and architecture? Um that, well? but also I think he means like just the embodied practices of um I'm trying to bring the article back up here. So he's talking about the ways that liturgy in itself, you know, someone was just describing to me how when they went to uh, an Orthodox service, it's mostly actually led from the congregation, that there might be someone on at the front who's singing a song, but the congregation is moving and singing. They stand most of the time and um, it's quite fluid. They will go and see icons during the service. And and so it's almost like a dance. There might be a caller on the stage, so to speak, in quotation marks, you know, like with a barn dance, there's a caller, but the caller's not actually doing what's happening in the room, that the room is filled with people dancing. And so what she was describing seemed more like that than what we more often have, which is like, more like a concert on the stage and we're just sitting and looking and listening and maybe singing along, but we're not leading from the congregational perspective, from the congregation's perspective. So oh, that's good. I like yeah, that. Yeah. So um, he's basically saying, let me see if I can find, Oh, he's talking about kneeling, yeah. um, confessing, lighting a candle, walking a labyrinth, a com- lingering over the communion meal and don't cover it up with blankets of explanatory words. Um, so the kind of embodied experience of reciting, responding, sitting, standing, kneeling, etc., which are all okay in the coronavirus shutdown. <laughs> That's right. They don't require uh, too much <laughs> within yeah. six feet. Yeah. Yeah, you can do those lot. things with distance. Yeah. So, Mandy, where is your church at right now? In there in Cincinnati, where are you in terms of gathering? Mm-hmm. In terms of in terms of new forms of discipleship or connecting people together? Yeah. yeah, it's been actually such a beautiful witness to me to watch how people have been um, ministering to one another during this time and how in all the ways that we as pastors have felt so limited, we've actually watched people step up and 
pray with one another and and just serve one another across the city. So that's really beautiful. We are currently meeting in a park with distancing and um, I have to confess I really enjoy that because there's the beauty of creation. It's like a cathedral with all the trees around us. And although I have been distracted several times in the middle of preaching by like a bird or a butterfly or something, so um, that's not really ideal for me to be distracted. <laughs> we are in the process currently of having conversations about what it looks like when the weather gets cooler. That's a little tricky and there's different people on stuff with different perspectives and even different ideas about how much of a threat the virus is and what our approach should be. So you know, sure. that's one of the things that makes this really difficult too, is even just trying to get on board together with the same approaches. Yeah, discipleship has been really great to see how people have creatively been having gatherings in their backyards and ministering in different ways to one another. So that's been a real blessing to me. But the, the first week that this all happened, I was on a call with a lot of other pastors in the city and we were all kind of freaking out together. And one person began by saying, you know, I know we're really anxious because we don't know if our congregations will survive this. And I was actually really troubled because I said, can we just define, he said, I don't know if our churches will survive this. And I said, can we just define what a church even is? Because, yeah, I don't know yet if I'm going to lose our building or our our finances or our staff, but my congregation is not going anywhere. You know, nothing is going to stop us from praying together. I mean, we might have to do it with distance and masks, but we can still pray or on Zoom and serving our community and sharing the good news. Like those things can be done without a building and without a paid staff. It would break my heart if I lost my job over it or if we lost the building over it. And thankfully, we're not in that place of having to worry about that just yet. But that will probably happen for some congregations. And somehow there was a way that the church managed without those things in the first century and, and often actually flourishes when it's run kind of underground or by lay leaders. So it might be a possible an opportunity, but also, I mean, it will break our hearts if, if those things happen and that's okay, but, but the kingdom will go on. You said that you have different opinions, even on staff, of how dangerous things are and how safe things should be and all that. What kind of a process will you use to approach making decisions as a staff mm-hmm. in, yeah, the next, in the really next tricky. month or two? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, you're going to have to do it. Do you have a, an idea or an approach to that? Yeah, we've been talking about it nonstop, it feels like. So we had first we had a season of fasting where we each took a day to fast over the course of a week and pray. And then we just sat around and shared what, what came to mind during that fasting time or how we saw things. And it wasn't always related specifically to this question, um, the ways that we saw things from our fasting. But we just took time without picking apart people's ideas to just share here's what we heard from God during that time. And then we kind of shaped two possibilities, two different options that was like, you know, 60 people with distancing and masks and contact tracing um, in the sanctuary with, you know, this arrangement of chairs, two services every Sunday, you know, like part that's option A. Option B is groups of 20 for just a communion service that's in people's backyards. Like that's not all the details, but, you know, we basically broke it down according to like how many people will be there, what will our measures be for being careful about coronavirus, how will we make sure that we keep the numbers under the right amount and will there be something online as well. And all these, like I basically made this little like a table 
so that the two could be easily compared, like when you're comparing two options on Amazon or something. And then I shared that. And so all of the staff were like, yeah, these are two doable options and different people had different opinions about which was the better one. Then I shared that with four or five medical professionals in our congregation and gave them three questions. One was on a scale of one to 10, on a scale of like high, high risk to low to no risk, where would you rate both of these two options? Which one would you be comfortable attending yourself? And or which ones, if, if both or neither? Um, and then also finally, do you have any other ideas or tweaks to these ideas? So then we gathered all that information from those people. And sadly, that wasn't conclusive. I was really hoping they would all say the same <laughs> thing, but they didn't. That's kind of where we are right now. I think something is emerging, but we still have to do some final tweaks to it. So it's a big process and it's exhausting work, but I'm learning how much thinking about how the conversation happens is actually a huge part of our work. And I spend a lot of time, or we all do, I think, when you just jump into a conversation, you actually waste a lot of, or spend a lot of time afterwards fixing up the mistakes and the misunderstandings in a conversation that you didn't really think through ahead of time. And Mm. I'm realizing even if you spend a lot of time beforehand thinking through how the conversation can unfold and praying even about how the process goes, it feels like you're spending a lot of extra time, but it's actually saving you so much time from all of the conflicts and misunderstandings that happen if you don't do it that way. So I'm learning that from experience. That's why I ask about the process. Mm-hmm. because obviously you're not coming down off the mountain and giving your church family the the edict of this right. is what we're going to do and this is how we're going to do it, because we heard that at the beginning. We heard that in the crisis, people just need directives. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's a crisis, they just need to be told what to do, and then they'll do it, and that's when leadership has to step up. Yeah. And yet, I think very quickly, we all realize that that's, at least I realize, that's, that's not really the way to do it because you're probably not going to have the right answer mm-hmm. and it's all, they're going to, that big tail is going to get pinned right on you <laughs> as it should. And then there's no collaboration. There's no teamwork. Right. There's no ownership. And here's something that I'm learning through all of this, that I'm naturally a collaborative leader, but I actually, I think that we're at a, we're at a season in the church, which is really healthy where we are saying, Oh, this is not what leadership looks like. It's not just one big guy at the front who's having all the answers and this kind of corporate boss type model. I think sometimes we can go to the opposite extreme and, and assume there's no leadership. I think we've abused leadership so much that like now nobody wants to talk about having authority or who gets to have a say. And I've actually, someone said to me, you know, consensus is not the same as collaboration. And so for somebody like me, I'm naturally um, not a typical leader. I'm not the classic leader model. I'm more, I'm a, I'm a nine on the Enneagram. I'm more of a compromiser and a, um, a collaborator. And I've actually, um, this is one of the things we've had to talk about as a staff is that there can't be consensus. Consensus is almost impossible. And in some ways, if you have consensus all the time, it's a sign of unhealth in a community because it means we are all thinking alike, which I don't think if that ever can ever happen, but. Or, or um, lying. Right. Or, yeah, pretending. Yeah. So it's been really uncomfortable for me, actually, because I long for consensus and I long for collaboration. And sometimes I actually compromise my own sense of call or my own preferences for the sake of um, just making everybody happy. But it doesn't actually make everybody happy, including me. So, um, so that's been actually a part of the things that we've had to talk about. I've realized, like, there is a way that Jesus had authority 
it wasn't because he was bigger and better and smarter and more educated than everybody else. His authority came from his submission to the father, that he was the one up earliest. He was the one praying and losing sleep and, and setting aside an emptying because of this thing that he was doing. And um, so it's been actually really helpful for me to realize that when there are times where somebody has to make the call, the people who have the authority, whether it's lay people or paid people, are the ones who, who have, you know, researched and had the conversations and, and lost sleep and prayed and wrestled and just given so much emotionally and spiritually and personally that they have, they have made the sacrifices necessary to, to take that authority and to humbly say, this is what I sense from the Lord. I might be wrong and I'm going to wear it if I am. Um, but I need to make this call. So that's really hard, um, especially when oftentimes God's direction doesn't feel very, very um, concrete. You know, it's usually kind of a vague sense. I want to meet the person who God's given a five-year plan to, you know, and because uh, yeah. he's never done that for me. He's usually like, what if this? Maybe move a step in this direction, you know, and um, that's humbling as a leader because you, you want to be able to offer other people more content and um, answers than God even offers to you. So, well, Mandy, it is a crazy time. I think you have invited us today to think maybe differently about this crazy time to let this time be a time maybe of exploration of our souls Mm -hmm. and exploration of what is possible and what God might be calling us into. Do you want to give a parting shot here? Mandy? I actually was just about to say, if I could say, ask one please, question. Please. Great. Um, it's kind of a two-parter. I did notice that you said something about it's a time of revealing. So I wanted yep. to ask you, are you saying this is an apocalypse? <laughs> so that's, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I would say, I would say it is. That's a, that's a, um, something for us all to ponder, I think. And also, I think something for us to ponder is that people who are used to the old normal are in a place of scrambling, myself included, are in a place of scrambling and saying, oh, everything we've done isn't working anymore. And that's a really disconcerting experience. What I would like to propose is that there are people for whom the old normal wasn't working and who actually figured out other ways what if we invited their voices, people on the margins, people we used to think were weird, who actually have something, they're already good at not functioning in that normal because it wasn't working for them before. And I would like to propose that women and people on the margins are already good at some of the new things that we're going to have to learn. And that bringing them into the conversations will actually you know, they're not as ruffled by this because they've had to function on the margins of what was normal for us already. So just something else to ponder. That's a good word. Do you have something, Jeff? Well, I did. And then I got interrupted by a text from my future daughter-in-law. Ooh. Um, so okay. I don't. Is she okay? <laughs> she's, oh, she's doing very well. Yep. She's oh, doing great. very well. Okay. She had, she had a meeting with HR today that she's so excited about and can't wait to tell us about. Oh, nice. Well, that's a nice reason to be distracted. John, Johnny, were you actually asking me to finish this out or were you asking Jeff to finish this out? Yeah, I was asking you to finish. Oh, good. Because I jumped Jeff in before you, went, before you finished the question and then I realized like maybe you were asking Jeff to no, write us out. I absolutely. will say, speaking of being interrupted, a hummingbird came and looked in my window right when I was, right when I was wrapping up. So... There was a lot of distracting things going on. It's a sign. 
I think yes. you're like the theological uh, Snow White, where she's like <laughs> in the woods and all the birds and the flowers oh, that's funny. and everything's like St. Francis. The stuff runs from me, and it is oh, attracted that's funny. to you. And that's wonderful. <laughs> that's that. hilarious. I've been compared to Mary Poppins before. Like, I'm sure I could see that. Yeah, it's the accent. Snow White. Yeah, it must be the accent. That's funny. <laughs> there you go. Well, there you go. It's been great to be with you guys. Thank you so much for your patience when I totally forgot to join you on time. Absolutely, Mandy. It was awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Well, there you go, Pastor. What do you think? What do you think? Should you be so quick to want to go back to normal? Or maybe we're in this time in our country, in our world, and as ministry leaders, where we can find some new ways, where we've actually been freed to find some new ways to think about and do ministry. Hey, honestly, if you're like me, and maybe you are, maybe you're nothing like me, but there are times when I just get a little tired having to think outside the box, having to try to come up with new ways and think, think in new ways and try to change my mental and psychological paradigm for ministry. Sometimes, right, it just gets tiring. It gets tiring. Let me encourage you, Pastor, Hey, all of us as pastors, we all get tired. We're all getting tired. So you get a little fresh air, clean up your diet, get a little extra sleep, spend time with really good friends, watch a good comedian on YouTube, and you know, you just try to look at life and say, hey, hey, here we are, here we are, let's, let's enjoy ourselves, and maybe we just need to take a break, get up, walk around, take a walk, do whatever you need to do to stay healthy emotionally, relationally, psychologically, and most importantly, spiritually. I would imagine Jesus got tired. He got tired of having to live that life where ultimately he was going to save the world, right? I I would imagine it was exhausting for Jesus the man to live with people like us, knowing that eventually he'd put himself in a position where we would just nail him to the cross. So you know what? We really don't have it that bad, do we? It's not that bad. Pastor, you can do it. Is it tiring? Yeah. But you can do it. You can do it. We believe in you. Johnny and I both believe in you, Pastor. And uh, you're going to do you're going to do great through the rest of 2020. And then 2021 is going to come and all bets are off. So <laughs> we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. Hey, Hey, we've got God, right? We can trust God, and that's awesome. Next week, we've got Mo Dixon. Mo Dixon is a friend of mine who, a recent friend of mine, actually, I met him. I met him in a couple different places, but most recently, we spent time in a class together. And Mo was a church planner and a pastor in Lincoln, Nebraska, helped to co-pastor a church plant that was very successful and is grew as a very healthy church right now and has recently moved out to New York City. He and his family, and he is now on staff at what is called the Metropolitan District of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, and his his uh, role out there is church multiplication in the greater uh, metropolitan area on the East Coast. So Mo and I talk, and I ask him a ton of questions 
around the whole uh, issue of the racial tensions in our country and how we as pastors and churches can interact with that and some things that we need to know and understand. And as he told me, uh, you can ask me questions. I don't always have the answers, but I'll try to give you an intelligent response. And he did, man. It was a great, it was a great conversation. So you're going to love next week, episode three of season two. That's coming right up next week, and we'll see you then on the 200 Churches Podcast.